So back in like January, February, 2021, I had like 2000 followers and I was like, I just want to get to 10K by April 1st, 2021. And like based on my, let's, let's listen here, based on my past project trajectory, there was no chance I was ever doing that. I literally took like seven months to get to 2000. So I said, I'm going to do this. I literally put it up on my wall. I'm going to get to 10K. It was April 1st and I had not hit 10K. And I was like, Jesus, like, what did I do? Like I failed. And then that thread came on April 9th, 2021. And I said, it was the title is I've interviewed five founders of billion dollar startups. Here's what I learned. I had no idea that I was going to blow up and have a few million impressions, like 30,000 likes. And I went from 5,000 followers to 17,000 followers in like a day and a half. Welcome to Behind the Thread, uh, the podcast where we interview your favorite content creators on Twitter so you can learn more about the person behind the tweets. Unscripted, unfiltered conversations with your favorite entrepreneurs, investors, and influencers. In this episode, we have Chris Ladd. Chris is just an absolute beast, to be honest. He recently graduated college from Yale. He already has over 160,000 followers on Twitter, writing about frameworks and different business stories. He started his own podcast where he interviews successful entrepreneurs and investors like Michael Seibel, who's the managing director at Y Combinator, Emmett Shear, who's the CEO and founder of Twitch, Kevin Ryan, who's known as the godfather of New York City tech. Chris now works in investment banking at Goldman Sachs. In this episode, we talked about how Chris built a massive following on Twitter, also how he got world-class guests on his podcast as a college student, and how he went about building a great network around him. Let me say this, if you're interested in learning how to build an audience and an incredible network, this is a must-listen episode. Thanks again to Chris for coming on the pod. This is one of my favorite interviews that we've done so far. I'm ready for you guys to hear it. Let's get right into it. Chris, great to have you on the pod, man. How you doing? Excited to be here. Can't wait. Let's do this. So just to start off, obviously, you went to college at Yale. You obviously did a bunch of stuff like outside of your degree, including your Twitter, obviously the podcast that you did as well. What was kind of your mindset going into college? Like, was that always the plan? Or did that just kind of happen naturally? Totally. Yeah. So my mindset, I guess, has changed a lot over the over the few years of college. And I think this is actually could be an important lesson for people who might be in a similar situation. So just starting off, I went to an all guys Catholic high school called LaSalle in the Philadelphia area. And originally I was lacrosse, lacrosse, lacrosse. So I played lacrosse since I was in first grade. My mom played in college. It was kind of something I was indoctrinated in. And I loved it. And that was kind of the majority of my life being, you know, school and sports was kind of everything through eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th grade into high school. And I got recruited to play lacrosse at Yale when I was actually a freshman, sophomore in high school. And I like verbally committed to, to play there. So that was kind of my first experience was I verbally committed. And then when I got into Yale and I stepped onto campus my freshman year of college, I said, lacrosse is going to be the most important thing on top of school. And those two things, I'm going to spend a lot of my time, just given the intensity of the team dynamics and the sport at Yale, it was going to be like a 40, 50 hour a week job. And then, you know, school was going to supplement. And that was great. And I learned a bunch of things about, you know, mental toughness, team dynamics, and a lot of those things that we can definitely get into. It's interesting to the audience. But I would say furthermore, when COVID hit and our season got canceled midway through my junior year, I had a year and a half to say, okay, now what do I want to do? 
I'd spent, you know, the beginning first years of college grinding, playing sport and just trying to figure out academics as well. And this was like an opportunity for me to kind of step back and say, okay, what's important to me? What do I want to make of the next year when I'm probably going to be locked down during COVID? So that's kind of when I got more interested in the Yale Entrepreneurial Society, which just for the listeners here is a group, uh, a club on campus at Yale where we have done a, a bunch of things. And I led our speakers and podcast group where I was able to interview some of these founders that Callum's mentioned. And we had a internships group. So we'd work with startups to place people and we placed over a hundred kids doing internships with different startups. And we had a bunch of different functions. And for me, that was good to just be in an organization where we didn't run it like a college club. A lot of people listening might be like, oh yeah, that check the resume box thing that you guys do for an hour, uh, you know, and put it on your resume. No, we actually ran this like a startup or like a business where it was intense recruiting. We were trying to build out like agency functions for our web developers on our team. And I took it very seriously, whether it be recruiting people to get guests for the podcast, whatever. So I think that was a good like first step for me. And then I discovered kind of this world of these founders and entrepreneurs, and it was just great to learn from them. And that's how I also discovered the Twitter stuff. And that's that kind of, for me, just showed that there's a little bit of a world outside of sport only when it was taken away. I think that was a good opportunity there to just to kind of dive in and learn something new. Okay, awesome. That's really interesting to hear that you kind of, you guys ran it like a startup. What kind of, like what made you do it that way? Because I know going to university, you have the clubs where you turn up once or twice a week. You say you kind of tick it off and you move on. What, what made you guys run it like a startup? Definitely. And that's why I caveat that because I feel like every club <laughs> is kind of similar. The reason why I think there was a few things. One, we had a really good core team. And two, we had just so much more time with COVID. Okay. Everyone being remote. We had a year basically from 2020 to like mid and 2021 when I graduated in May where like no one had anything else to do. And when there's nothing else to do, we're like, why don't we make this amazing? Why don't we have three, 400 people showing up to our fireside chats with the speakers? Why don't we reach out to a ton of startups and actually get internships? I think that was the mentality. But I think it also started with we would have weekly board meetings with like the people on our board and discuss like what, what direction do we want to bring in? How can we recruit? How can we think about this? And it was great for me too, because it was like a lot of like-minded people that were super into this. And that's all you really want in like a college club or whatever you call it yeah. is like people that are super invested. And we kind of wanted to make it the best place for entrepreneurship at Yale and like rival that of Stanford or Harvard or any of these other more established areas. Okay, nice. So can you kind of just give the audience, I want to give it some context. I know I mentioned a couple of the people that you guys got on, but at least when it comes to your podcast, you had like some killer guests. So can you can you kind of give um, a bit more context on like some of the people that you managed to get on and then also how you did it? I think that's important. The how is very important that sure. we get into that. So I'd say a few of the headline guests. We had Sander Daniels, who's a founder of uh, Thumbtack. It's like a $3 billion company today basically think about it as like the Amazon marketplace, but for services. So if you want to hire a painter, plumber, et cetera. So that was one of our guests, Emmett Shear, who's the current CEO of Twitch. They sold it for a billion dollars to Amazon, I think in 2016. We had Michael Seibel, who's on that founding team at Twitch. He's the current CEO of Y Combinator. And then another guest, he's called like the godfather of New York City tech. His name's Kevin Ryan. And he founded MongoDB, which is like a $20 billion public 
database software company right now. He was part of the founding team at Business Insider. Guilt Group, it's called, is another one. And then DoubleClick, which is like a multi-billion dollar ad tech company that sold to Google in the early 2000s. We had Donna Dubinsky, who was another cool name, who actually, before everyone realized the iPhone and like smartphones were like the next wave, she was the CEO to the predecessor to Apple in terms of, she. it was called like Palm Pilot, if any of the older guests know this, like Palm Inc. She was the CEO and now she's the CEO of a biotech company called Numenta. And then a few other names. Bing Gordon was another one. He served on Amazon's board for 15 years, actually. And he was the original, one of the original founding team at Electronic Arts. So if you're a video games person, like EA Sports to the game, yeah. like if you play that game, that was <laughs> that was part of him. So yeah, those were some of the guests. Happy to dive into like techniques and strategies because obviously getting these guests are are difficult. And I think it's it's important, especially if you're like college kid like me, just trying to hustle and get people on. Happy to discuss those strategies. Yeah, yeah. Let's go into it. When you were even trying to identify guests, how you were reaching out to them, some of those like techniques and strategies. Yeah. Give me the playbook on how you guys did it. 100%. Yeah. So I'd say the first thing, and this can be generalized outside of what we did specifically at Yale, but you want to find affinity with your guests. I think that's like the very first thing. So for us, it was obvious. People that went to Yale. They went to Yale. They have some affinity for us. In general, they're going to be more receptive than like if I emailed some random guy, I went to Stanford or some other school, less likely that they're going to say yes. So I think that's the first thing. Find your affinity. And that can be we went we were from the same high school. We went to this, we were in the same area. We like the same sports. Oh, they're a massive soccer fan. I'm a massive Chelsea fan or whatever. It doesn't matter if it's your exact school. Obviously, the same college is a good affinity, but that's the first thing. I would say the second thing is you need to like find all of those people and then say, okay, how am I going to get to them? So you found the affinity pool. You have a group of, I had like 30 people that I wanted to invite anywhere from like Ben Silberman, who is the CEO of Pinterest to like anyone who's, you know, any Yale that recently started a startup. Someone, his name's Kevin Tan, a snack pass. We didn't end up interviewing, but they're really great. They're, you know, multi hundred million dollar company, few years out of college. So like you want to get a wide breadth of people. So that's the first thing. So find your affinity. Second thing is how are you going to contact them? So a few things that we leaned on for our specific case, this Yale Entrepreneurial Society group had founders and people that had worked that were in the club for the last like 10, 15 years. So I reached out to them and said, hey, do you know this person? Hey, do you know this person? Hey, I know you were involved in the club before and that you're trying to have some involvement. We put together an advisory board of like older, more successful entrepreneurs that were like, could have this involvement. So one example is Sean Glass. He was the original founder of Yes in 1997. He's now successful, has had a startup or two and is, and you know, has a, has a bigger network. He put us in contact with Jenny Fleiss, who's the founder of Rent the Runway, who just went public the other, a few months ago. So that's one example of like, find your affinity and then find anyone who could have a tie to them. So that's one thing. But then a lot of them, it's like, you don't have a tie to these people. So it's like, how can I get in touch with them at that point? So I think you go through affinity, then find a tie. And then if if you need to like cold email someone, then you need to. So a few things about the cold emailing. One of my theories is that in the next decade, the fact that like in 20, 10, 20 years from now, the fact that you can just cold email anybody is the craziest thing in the entire world. People are going to be like, I can't believe you could just email them. Like right now, if you can guess or find the format or find someone's email, there's so many ways to do it. If you can look them up and find their email and send them a cold email, that is an incredible superpower that I think is super underrated and people should use more. 
So one thing, figure out their email. So that's the first obvious thing. The second thing is it's just, and we can talk about writing process later with like the tweet threads and stuff like that. But your first thing is your subject line and your hook. How can you get them when they're scrolling through their inbox to want to open up your email? And that goes back to the affinity thing. For me, it was, you know, Yale Entrepreneurial Society chat or something like that. And I can actually pull up the subject lines too, which might be interesting um, later. But I would say that's the first thing is like find an engaging hook to say, oh, yeah, I went to Yale. Oh, this might be interesting. I would say the next thing is the actual body of the email and the cold email itself is incredibly important. So I have a framework for this. It's like SSS. It's like short, specific and short, specific and to the point. And it's like you want to have five lines or less. You want to have spacing. Oh, no, short spacing and specific five lines or less. You want to have spacing between it so it's easy for them to consume. And it's very specific of what your ask is. So to this point, when you're emailing Amateur, who's, you know, is this big CEO that has a bunch of employees and people bothering him for his time, you want to say, here's the exact ask. Here's a point about what specific research I did on you. Like, here are three things that I noticed in your Twitch journey in one sentence. And I think that's the important part is like, it's very specific. It's obvious that I didn't email Emmett and 50 other people the same exact line. So that's the other thing. And then it's the specific with the ask. Hey, would, would love to have you for 30 minutes at this time. You know, we typically have an audience of this few hundred Yale people that are Yale students, et cetera. So I think those are a bunch of the flavors. Happy to dive in um, to anything kind of specific in there. No, I think there's a there's a bunch of gold in there, to be honest. I think the first thing you mentioned on the affinity pool, like I love that concept. And it, it's interesting because I was reading a book recently about networking and how you can network with like successful people. And one of the things they mention is likability. And I think naturally as humans, we just we like people that have shit in common with us. So like whenever you can draw that out in the initial meeting, that's going to definitely catch someone's interest. I guess I'm kind of interested, like, obviously your framework is super polished now, but how did you even discover all this stuff? Yeah, I kind of, I think it's a lot of trial and error and that's kind of a cop-out answer is like, it's easy to say, oh, I tried a lot of things. Well, if you're listening to this, you don't want to try a lot of things, right? You want to learn from what (laughs) I did. So I'd say a few things. You need to see what gets responses. So I sent out a bunch of these emails and some of them didn't get responses. Some of them did. And I was expect that you're not going to get a response to everything. So I'd say seeing that. And then for me, I think the reason why the cold emails were more effective is that I'd spent months and months and months writing on Twitter and realizing that, oh, wow, no one cared about this tweet because the hook was so bad, meaning the first line. Yeah. Oh, wow. That actually matters. Then that kind of percolates in the back of my head and say, oh, if that matters so much, maybe I can take that to email. So it's like kind of like these lessons that you learn from writing online and getting feedback. Because on Twitter, what's great about it is as soon as I post something, I know exactly what the market feedback is going to be. And the market doesn't care how much time you put into it, what you think about it. It's is this engaging? Am I learning something? And do I want to share this at the end of the day? That's it. Yeah. So I think taking that feedback that I kept getting from the market and saying, how can I apply this to emails? So I'd say that's that's kind of how I stumbled into it. Definitely refined it more later and had some practice around it. But I, I guess that's kind of the start of it. To be honest, I actually love the answer about it was trial and error because that's that's like the real that's the real thing. And I think <clears throat> one of the things I've noticed, especially because I even like when I was getting my first job, 
I sent like a bunch of cold emails to try and network with people. You kind of have to expect a lot of people aren't going to respond and it can be kind of discouraging. So I think to be honest, it's good for the audience to hear. You sent out a bunch of emails. I'm sure you had a bunch that didn't get any traction, but like no one really even remembers that. They only remember that you interviewed like Michael Seibel, Emmett Shear, um, and some of the other people that you mentioned, right? So, And I think the more important point, and that's what this is like kind of naturally leads into this, is follow-up is everything. Yeah, Never. Sure. I think you even followed up with me about this interview when we were trying to schedule it. People are busy, especially people that are have gotten to that level of success. If you think that like they just read your message and said, oh, I hate this kid. I'm just not going to respond. That's never the case. They probably read it. Oh, and then they were like, oh, I need to respond and forgot. If you continually follow up in like a nice, friendly way and don't be annoying about it, be like, oh, yeah, wait a week and say, hey, just wanted to you know follow up on this. Would love to have you here. The other speakers that we have locked in. That's giving them information that you have credibility. Yeah. And also saying, hey, just wanted to you know, schedule you for this. That's important. The follow-up is so underrated here. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, definitely. No, that's gold, man. Okay, cool. So I guess the next thing is, so you've secured the speaker, like they've agreed to come on. I think I've realized even once they've agreed, there's kind of a whole process to actually then get them on and then also like deliver a great interview. Did you, I'm assuming you had times when people rescheduled, they couldn't do it. Could you kind of talk about that and like how you actually got it over the line and then also like how you prepared for the interviews? hundred percent. So I think ours was actually a little more difficult too, because ours was a live fireside chat. Oh, so just for the audience's benefit, it wasn't just like a one-on-one podcast like it is right now with Callum and I, which is easier to schedule because right, you have one person to schedule around. For us, it would be we get the speaker locked in and then we have a marketing process of how many students or people outside can we get to show up? So what's the most embarrassing thing is what if I get Michael Seibel on and 20 people are there on Zoom? That is the hu- most humiliating thing, right? I don't want that to happen. So what I I did, I would get the speaker and then I would start marketing. I would start marketing. We put together marketing materials. We did design team for the Entrepreneur Society. We put together, we blasted over an email list that I put together. So I'm learning how to like email copyright to get people to actually sign up. We blasted out over Instagram, Facebook groups, whatever. And for Cybel, we ended up having 400 people, which I think is the peak of what we had on Zoom at one time. But that was kind of a whole layer of difficulty. And then we had audience Q&A at the, at the end for the last 15 minutes. So there was a whole level of difficulty around that. But I would say purely for the inter- interview preparation process, I thought about it like this. I want them to be on my side before the interview even starts. And what do I mean by that? So what I mean by that is, I want them to say they're showing up to this interview. They haven't thought about it since they agreed to it a month and a half ago. And they have no clue who I am. They don't really care. They're just like, oh, it's a Yale kid. I want them to think, wow, this person has already put in so much effort, due diligence and research that I know that they're serious and they're going to have we're going to have a good conversation. So the way I did that is I would literally consume every single podcast, article, whatever that they've ever done for hours and hours and hours. And then I'd formulate 15 to 20 in-depth questions on various topics. And I'd try to group them by topic. And then from there, I would send that Google Doc or list of questions via email to them as like a reminder and a confirmation one to two days before the event. So I knew 99% of the time they didn't look at the questions in terms of like preparation beforehand. But it showed to them as, wow, this kid's on top of it. And that he knows like exactly what's going on. And this isn't going to be 
tell me about your entrepreneurial story kind of question, because they answer that a hundred times, especially for these people who have been interviewed a lot more. Michael Seibel and Kevin Ryan do interviews like all the time, right? So they're like, I don't want to be asked, like, what do you think about entrepreneurship? They want to be asked like in-depth questions of someone who's done their homework. So I think that's a lot of the preparation. Happy to talk about the research process as well or something in more in depth. No, I think, to be honest, I think that's a great point. And I think one thing that I've noticed, especially when you're trying to network or do things with people that are very successful, their time is really limited. So even for them to spend like half an hour, an hour with you doing a podcast or doing something, it's there's a big opportunity cost there. There's a lot of other things they could do. So I think to your point, like just showing that you put in that level of preparation beforehand it's okay, I'm not wasting my time by like talking to this guy, which you're going to stand out. Yeah, off the jump. Mm. Okay, cool. So I think, could we go into a bit like, you mentioned that you listened to 15, you listen to like a bunch of podcast episodes, you'd come up with like 15 questions. Was it literally just podcast? I'm assuming there's some people that they didn't even have other podcasts that they had done. Can you lift the curtain behind the research process? For sure. Yeah, I think it was highly dependent on the guest. Like, for example, Michael Seibel, he's done a bunch of interviews. They do YC YouTube videos, and he's given a lot of his thoughts around startup building, kind of the future of startups, how he thinks about product market fit and all those types of concepts and topics. So I think that's one thing. And he would, I would say, is easier to research, but I'd say the easier they are to research, the harder they are to interview well, because that means they've been asked everything. Right. If they've been asked him everything, it's harder to like show that you've had thoughtful questions. So I'd say there's a double edged sword there. I would say in terms of the actual nitty gritty of the research, I would do I would listen to the podcast and then like I would try to get transcripts and just like put them into a Word doc. Or I would try to like pick out what I thought were like key points and like write them down. And I would say it was a mixture of like having the, all those notes kind of together. And then what were maybe the common themes across them? And then maybe it would be reading articles they've written. Some of the older founders have written stuff on Medium or like in different blog format. And I would try to pull those out and say, okay, how can I use that? Sometimes, you know, they they might have content that they put out themselves. So I'd say it's a mix. At the end of the day, like if you've done your homework on these types of questions and like have actually spent the time, it's going to be natural and obvious that like You've already proven by sending them a list ahead and that like during the conversation, it's going to be better. So I think it's finding as much as you can kind of in the moment ahead of time and, and you'll be good. Would you say, I think it's super interesting, like sending the list ahead of time. Would you say that most of the people you interviewed read it or like it was just something that kind of helped you in the moment? Most didn't read it. Okay. But I think the point for me too, especially as a college kid was it was obvious that I had the credibility and that like I had done the research. So like it was kind of irrespective of them reading it because it's really easy. Like even if you've done your homework and like I was doing my first interviews in front of a live audience with all these people and these founders, like I'm not polished. I'm not going to have like an awesome conversation on like my first time. I remember a funny story. I literally my first like two interviews, I refused to just like go off script almost like I would ask other questions, but like I was too rigid. And then it's like, I realized that and like, it took me time to like be more conversational and realize this is just a guide instead of like a script. And that's part of it. But I think it's just showing that you've done your homework because they have no idea, like if you've really done your homework and you don't want to take 20 minutes for them to get you on your side. Yeah. Okay. Nice. That's awesome, man. Okay, cool. So, so you've done the interviews. I'm kind of interested in like, 
where would you take it after you'd done like the initial interviews? Because I'm sure it's cool that like to speak with these guys, but you also would love to have them in your network past that. Would there be anything that you would do afterwards? Yeah, I've actually thought a lot about this one. Um, so directly after, send them like a thank you email with something specific about what you learned. Key, right? This is a key from before. Specificity is important. Not thanks so much for taking the time. That's not good enough. Specificity. Even for one or two of them, like the Cyber one in particular, we had people like emailing me after saying like, that was literally one of the best interviews. That was awesome. I learned so much. And it's not credit to me. It's credit to Michael, right? But I took that and said, oh, here are a few people's feedback. Boom. So like he knows that like he spent his time in a way that like the Yale community was super excited about it, right? So I think that's part of it, validating that like people were listening, people were understanding, people were enjoying the conversation. So I think that's the first thing. And then for me, I've kind of set a cadence of every like four to six months, I would reach out and send an email back to some of the guests. It hasn't been every single guest, but it would be like Sander, for example, who was our first guest in like September 2020. Like six months later, I said, oh, hey, Sander, I know it's been a while since we last spoke. Here are all the different guests that we've had since you since you were on. Super simple, easy, specific. And he's like, oh, wow, that's awesome. Like, great to hear. So he knows that like we've kind of been developing and continuing to do stuff after he was the one that kind of started us off as the first. So I think that and then trying to like update them on my life every four to six months. I sent an, you know something to Kevin Ryan and said, oh, hey, here's what I've been doing. Just like a few quick bullet points with what I've been up to since. And it's just trying to develop a relationship. And it's like they don't need to respond to that. I don't think you should say, I want to know every single thing you've been up to. Right. It's here's what I've been up to, just wanted to drop in and say hi. I think that takes the pressure off for them and they don't need some long-winded response. And I think that's kind of the way to slowly develop a relationship with someone that is very busy. Nice. That's a, that's a really good, that's a really nice framework. I think one thing when I just listened to you speak about it, it's kind of clear you were providing value at every stage of the interaction. So even before you, even when you were emailing them, it was specific, you actually knew something about them. Uh, obviously, you'd already done your research for like during the interview, so it went well. And then also showing them feedback, keeping them updated. I'm interested because obviously, I think we're both pretty early in our careers. Mm -hmm. How did it even click in your mind? Okay, I need to provide value at each step of the interaction. Did you have mentors or was there or was it just really just naturally it just kind of came to you? Yeah, I think that I picked this up from like Twitter osmosis, maybe. Okay. So I think it's common like the way I've everyone's kind of in traditional sense, when you say network, typically people over 30 think handing out business cards at like a conference or going to some like networking session where everyone's going to hand out business cards. I've kind of had just like a reframe. Maybe it's from things I've read, watched, whatever. It's probably been osmosis through that is I think about networking. Like how can I develop relationships with people where it's like mutually beneficial? Right. For someone like Kevin Ryan, I can't provide a ton of value to him. Right. He's already had a successful career. He's doing kind of whatever he wants. and He doesn't really need me. But guess what? It's oh, wait, this is like a young kid that's a Yale grad that's did a good job interviewing me. And maybe that I, he can like get every six months, get like a quick update. And that's it. That's like value. it's like feels like he's mentoring someone. And I think something that's underrated is like people that are more successful in their career. They do want to mentor people. They don't want to spend an hour with you every week and like agree to that up front, but they want to mentor people and they want to know how people are doing as long as you build a genuine relationship of like, hey, 
I just want to like learn from you and I just want to do whatever I can to improve. And I think that's like that genuine authenticity is important. Um, and I think that's kind of where you start. Nice, nice. And I, and I love the point about like, even when you would send those follow-up emails, they wouldn't have to respond. Because I think literally these guys get like, I'm assuming like hundreds of emails all the time, right? So like, if you can do it in a way where they don't have to respond, yeah, that that's awesome, man. Okay, nice. So you, you spoke you spoke a bit about Twitter, like picking things up through Twitter osmosis. Let's kind of switch gears and talk about that a bit. How did you initially kind of get into Twitter, like start producing content? Yeah, what was that journey like? Definitely. Yeah. So it started because of COVID again. I think that's a common theme. <laughs> Not a lot more free time. I had read people's essays like Paul Graham and Sam Altman, who are like, wow, these people are super awesome. And I think the ability for them to like concisely convey information through the written word was like super appealing to me because I'm like, wow, these guys like Paul Graham has a janky website that like looks like it's from like the 1990s. And people, literally millions of people every month will flock to that whenever he drops a new essay or something like that. I thought, wow, like it's cool that he's able to share that and he's able to like distill his learnings in such a way. So then I guess the seminal moment was I watched and I've told a lot of people about this who DM me saying like, hey, how can I grow on Twitter? I watched David Perel and Matthew Kobach, who are both like bigger people on Twitter they had a YouTube video. It was like how to crush it on Twitter. And it was like a corny title. And it was sometime in like May, 2020. And I watched that. I'm like, I want to try this. Like, I'm sure I'm probably not going to do very well. Like it's hard. Like what do I have to share? And I'm just going to like try it and get on it and start posting. So I started in like June, 2020, which I guess a year and a half ago now and started posting. And for the first like six months, I think I had a thousand followers. Like I literally like no matter what I did, like I just zero likes, zero likes. My girlfriend, my mom would be the only ones that would like my tweet and I would yeah. have to like ask them to, right? And that would be it. And I kind of just slowly like figured it out and we can talk more about the tactics around it for sure. But that was kind of the start of it. I think the, and I, I think the most important thing too, and we can talk about how I think about goal setting as well, is like, what's the point of doing this? You need to have a why for what you do. Because if you just assume, okay, I'm going to do this. And then like in a month, it's going to be hard and you're going to want to give up. You need a why for why you did it in the first place, or then you're going to just end up giving up every time something gets hard. So for me, the why was just like I did with the entrepreneurial stuff, society stuff. I wanted to, you know, build my network and learn from people. This Twitter thing was, I want to learn how to write better. I want to be concise because I was a political science major in college, which was tons of 15, 20 page papers where you learn how to do research, but you don't learn how to concisely write and be punchy. So it's like, one, I want to learn how to write, and two, I want to meet awesome, like-minded people. And I thought Twitter was a great way to do it. So like every time it got tough and I was like getting zero likes on all my tweets and no one really cares about any of my content, that's what I kept going back to. And I think that's the important thing that kind of pushed me through. Okay, nice. Okay, cool. I think it's, it's interesting. Like everyone, uh, a lot of people that blew up on Twitter have like, it, it happens very like not much happens and then it all happens at once, right? So the first few months is no one's responding to anything. And then you'll have one tweet thread that goes viral and it'll explode your following. I think I was reading about with you, it was the five interviews with like successful people. Here's what I learned. Can you kind of talk a bit about that? Like what was the, did you know ahead of time? Like, okay, I think this is going to be the one or like, how did that even happen? It's actually funny. So there's more of a story to this. So let me set the stage for the audience because this is actually kind of funny. So 
back in like January, February, 2021, I had like 2000 followers and I was like, I just want to get to 10 K by April 1st, 2021. And like, based on my, let's, let's listen here. Based on my past trajectory, there was no chance I was ever doing that. I literally took like seven months to get to 2000. So I said, I'm going to do this. I literally put it up on my wall. I'm going to get to 10 K. I'm going to do this. I'm going to write these threads. I'm going to get to 10 K. And it was like zero, 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 nothing. I wrote a thread about James Clear, like what I learned from Atomic Habits. James retweeted it because it was I like I spent 365 days like reading in a row. Like I'd done a reading goal every single day. And he retweeted. And it was like basically my learnings from habit building. So that like got me to like 4,000. But it was still, it was April 1st and I had not hit 10K. And I was like, Jesus, like what did I do? Like I failed. Yeah. And then that thread came on April 9th, 2021. And I said, it was the title is I've interviewed five founders of billion dollar startups. Here's what I learned. I knew the hook was going to be good. Obviously, like that's like very enticing to people, but I had no idea that it was going to blow up and have a few million impressions, like 30,000 likes. And I went from 5,000 followers to 17,000 followers in like a day and a half. And the way I think about it is like, I set this crazy goal. I failed, but then I achieved it like a week later. Yeah. So like, it's kind of like, if I would have set the goal, just get to 5,000, I don't think it would have ever happen. Because what I was trying to do is shoot for something and just let it happen if I'm continually putting in the work and there would be a way to find a way, but you can't predict like the breakthrough. You have no idea. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, that's awesome, man. You know, you know, one thing, cause you, you mentioned earlier in the interview, obviously that you like, you did lacrosse. I'm kind of interested, like, obviously your background is kind of in sport and just listening to you speak like you're very like goal orientated you put in a ton of like preparation i'm kind of interested how much your background as an athlete kind of informed that or was it just like inbuilt yeah so i'd say it's definitely two things one having the athletic background of like having to grind to get anything done like whether it be you're injured and you need to practice anyway and figure it out like there's no excuses there's just like you need to get the job done or you don't feel like doing a lift and you don't feel like doing this conditioning and you have to do it because that's what's going to take to make the team win. And that was kind of the mindset that I was in through my team, uh, especially in college. It was like, I wasn't the best player on the team by, by any stretch. And it was more like, what can you do today to improve, to improve the outcome of the team in the future? That's it. What can I do today? And if like not, if not all the 50 guys on the team, if they weren't improving every single day, you were letting the team down. I know that's very harsh for people to outside the team, right? Or yeah. outside like sports in general. But that was kind of the mentality that I brought um, to things that I do try to do today. So I'd say that's one thing. The other thing was I just grew up in a household where goal setting was huge. My dad works in sales and like for sales, like it's just clear, right? Your output is like how many, how many things you can sell in a given year. So it's a very goal oriented thing that you can set goals around that that are very measurable. So we grew up in a saying with my household, both my parents said this, it was like, set a goal so big, it'll blow your mind. And that's just like stuck with me and kind of been kind of in my psyche of like how I think about goal setting in general. Nice. No, that's, that's awesome, man. And I think it's just, I can just tell from listening to you speak, you're so process orientated. And I think to be honest, like if you're going to spend seven months posting on Twitter and not get that much traction, you have to be into the process, man. You have to be ready to put it in every day. Do you have any other tips? Obviously you mentioned setting large goals, knowing why you're doing it. Do you have any tips on like 
how to stay consistent. Because I think that's the, I think there's a bunch of people out there that get like super motivated. They know what they want to do, but then maybe they get that first pushback. They send those first few tweets, kind of what you said, zero likes, no retweets, no comments. They're kind of just putting it into a black hole. Like, how do you stay motivated? How do you stay consistent over a long period of time? Yeah, that's that's a really important point. And I think I'm in that camp too, right? Like it's I'm not saying that I'm not demotivated. Like we all go through that. Yeah. So I'd say like we all go through that. We all are demotivated to a certain extent when things don't go well. I would say a few things about the specific process. So I'm very in the mindset of like the atomic habits, James Clear, of like make these habits or things that you do on a daily basis very small so you can stay consistent. What I mean by that is when I read every single day for a year, 365 days, a few things. It wasn't read one hour per day. Do you know why? It's because after a week, I would have already failed, right? Sometimes you don't have an hour to read. So what it would be is my goal was I want to read at least a page every single day. So I want to read something every single day from a book. And I think that's the one thing is like make the habit so small that you can guarantee to do it. So if you're trying to think about if you want to grow on Twitter, it's I'm going to write tweets, whether it be a tweet or a thread for 15 minutes every single day, seven days a week. Do that for three months and you'll be surprised how much progress you can make. So I'd say instead of you get all this energy, you're all pumped up, you listen to some New Year's resolution podcast or some David Goggins thing or whatever, and you say, I'm going to go out and do three hours of writing every single day. No, you're going to give up because you're going to be exhausted. So make it small and then just continually do it every single day. And when you don't want to do it, what's your why for doing it, right? That that keeps you going. So I'd say like starting small and making sure it's a small, consistent thing is like the key there. Okay, nice. That's awesome, man. So I want to also make sure I'm giving the people like some of the like the practical tips of how how you got to where you're at. So when it comes to like writing tweet threads, can you kind of just give a bit of like the source a bit of like how you how you go about doing it like how you even find i saw you recently did one for like seinfeld which went crazy like how do you even find these topics you mentioned the hook earlier like how do you come up with like a really good hook what's kind of that process yeah so i'd say it starts with idea capture that's the first thing and if you think like you can just sit down and write like something good you're wrong it starts with like what are you consuming so it's like a funnel at the top of the funnel, it's like every single input that you have. Are you scrolling TikTok? Are you reading something? Are you on Instagram? Are you on Twitter? Like, what are you consuming a daily basis? And that's going to inform at the bottom of the funnel what your output is that you actually put onto Twitter or wherever you're going to write. So that's the first thing. So you need to like audit your attention diet. I think James Clear talked about this one time, but it's thinking about like, what is that input that you can put in to like actually create a good output? So they say the first thing for me, I have like a system of, I subscribe and I'll give them a shout out here. Stoop inbox. It's just like a, a random service where you can basically, it gives you an email. So mine's like Chris Halad at stoopinbox.com. You can go and I can subscribe to literally every newsletter I want without worrying about it, like clouding up my, my personal email. So I'll literally have, I subscribe to like 50 newsletters and it'll be like 400 unread newsletters in this app on my Stoop inbox. And what I'll do is I'll just scroll through that and say, oh, that grabs my attention. Let me read that. What's interesting about this? Okay, this is cool. So that's like a constant input. And I don't have to worry. Like I can just pick and choose what I want to read on a given day. 
So I say that that's the first thing. Second thing is I subscribe to a bunch of cool podcasts. And depending on how much time I have with my current day job, I'll listen to some of them on the weekends or whenever. So those are classics. Like if you're listening to this, you probably know. My First Million, you know, Tim Ferriss, you know, Colossus, what they're doing is really cool. So there's a few of those that are just like better inputs. But I'd say podcasts are pr- probably more difficult for Twitter content. Sometimes you can grab like something that might be interesting and just like pull on that and write a thread. I would say Reddit, being in like a bunch of cool subreddits is cool, is something that's useful. I would say some blogs that could be useful. And I can get a list to that we can put in the show notes maybe after, like more specific that I might be interested in. But yeah, those are, so like get your top of funnel right would be like the first thing. And then you can think about writing. Because if you're not consuming great information, you're not going to do well. And I've learned this firsthand with my current day job. Uh, when I've gotten busier in investment banking, like working a bunch of hours, I haven't been able to consume as much good content, which means I haven't been able to create as much good content. So it's like a one-to-one relationship with like, you need to have a great top of funnel first. I think there's a bunch of, and you look at people that have large followings, tends to be like massive founders, these people that have got like an exit or they've done something. Obviously for people like us, like we're still pretty early, like we're making our legacy, like how did you even kind of get the tone right where like rather than having the spin of I did this, I sold this company, you're just talking about things that you find interesting? Yeah, I definitely think there's a huge. So I've felt a ton of imposter syndrome as well. Yeah. Like I see people with massive followings that have like built real businesses and done really cool things. And I think, wow, like what am I to say? Like I can write anything worth listening to. So like you need to come in like that level of humility of like, who am I to write something? It shouldn't scare you from writing, but what it should do is like, you should not assume that you're an expert. I do not write something and say, this is how you build a business. Cause I've never built a very successful business. Like the people that I've interviewed, right? Like you need to come in with that humility and like stay in your lane of, you have a certain area of expertise. What can you do that is valuable? So for me early on, it'd be curating really cool stories or whatever that I could find and making them digestible. And the value add that I had was I can tell this in an entertaining way that makes you actually want to read this instead of you trying to put together 20 different articles online and like get the punchline or like the story. So I think that was part of it. So it's like thinking about what can you add value on? So I think that's the first thing and just come in with a bunch of humility. Okay, awesome. And then I I guess the final thing is one thing about Twitter, like the capacity for something to go viral is kind of built into the app obviously with the retweet and you can quote tweet how and i and i see like there's a a few groups of people uh, on twitter that they help share each other's content they they all kind of have like a similar angle like how did you and i see even with you there's certain people that you tend to retweet their stuff and you guys like interact with each other's content can you kind of speak about how important it is to kind of make those sorts of connections and like supporting other creators that Obviously, you enjoy their content as well. Yeah, there's a few things. So let me, I forgot to talk about the writing process. So let me do that really quick and then I can get to that. So I'd say the one thing about the writing process is when I'm actually, so I have everything in a Notion doc of like, here are 10 ideas that I like picked up this week and I'm saying I'm going to write about it. I'll take a fresh, I use Typefully, which is like a pretty good app. It's free if you guys want to use it, it's super clean. So I'll take that and I will write a really bad draft like really bad, like 20 or 30 or 45 minutes. I'll just like set a timer. I'll like block out all my social media, block out everything. 
and I will write a really bad draft as quickly as I possibly can. And this has been pioneered by, I got to give him a shout out, like Julian Shapiro has done this really well and talked about this. Sean Peary, who I actually worked for for a few months and apprenticed for back when I was like my senior year of college. But this whole like concept of like thinking that you're going to perfect something when you start to write it down is completely made up. Like every single great writer you've ever seen that writes great essays, any any author you've ever seen, it took like hundreds of iterations for them to find the perfect word or find the perfect way to phrase this or find the right way to frame it. You writing a first draft should be just terrible as quickly as you can because 95% of it's the rewrite. And that's part of the Seinfeld system as well is that you need to get something on paper and your brain will automatically be like, oh wait, this is how I can fix this. Oh wait, this is how I can fix this part. Oh, this is what I should add here. But getting like staring at a blank page is kind of the worst way to like hurt yourself and realize that you're not gonna really write anything good. So just get past that intimidation and write something poorly as quickly as you can. I know it's counterintuitive. And then you can step away from it. You can do some editing, then you can do some refining and then it comes to posting it. But yeah, so I'd say that's like writing process 101 of how you should approach writing on Twitter. Second thing about like finding like-minded people who are creating good content. I would say this is a big unlock for me. You wanna be surrounded by people who are pursuing similar goals, right? In college, it could be if you're interested in finance and you are in the finance club and all of you guys wanna work in finance, this is important to be surrounded by these people because it's like, oh wait, I just had an interview with X company and they asked me this. Okay, here's what I can learn from this. Same thing applies to like any other thing in life, specifically around Twitter as well is, oh yeah, we wanna grow on Twitter. We wanna meet more like-minded people. We wanna you know, learn how what we're doing, if we can write better, how, how you guys have your process. So naturally, if you're trying to do that, you need to form these groups of people where you can learn from them, exchange ideas, and then by a byproduct of that, you want them to grow and you can help them out. You know, If you see their tweets, comment on their tweet or something like that. So that, I think that's part of it. You want to be surrounded by like-minded people who are actually incentivized to do the same goals that you, that you want to do. Okay, awesome. Okay, can we let's let's just dive in a bit deeper there. When it so you're on Twitter, you see like-minded people, you see accounts that you like and you're commenting on their stuff. Is it really just that simple in terms of making like forming that relationship or are you like in the DMs, reaching out to them privately? And if so, do you have kind of like a DM etiquette like a like a playbook that you use to kind of reach out to people in that way? DMs are everything. Definitely DMs. DMs are super underrated. And I think more people are talking about this on Twitter. So I think they're not becoming as underrated anymore. But DMs are great. I think it's just a great way. Like, think about it like you're texting someone. You have the, you know, have an opportunity to text someone. If you see them, their content, you like them, why not text them? And something I've been thinking about more is like, if I'm even reading a book that I like and I see the authors on Twitter, why would I not DM him and say, Oh, I'm reading your book. This is awesome. Perfect example is this guy, Alex Benayan. Benayan, I don't know how to pronounce the name. He wrote The Third Door, which is a super interesting concept. I read his book. I loved it. And I DM'd him. And now I've been you know, talking to him a little bit in the DMs of like, oh, wow, what do you think about this? X, Y, Z. So it's like use DMs because they have infinite upside and no essential downside. Like the worst case is someone doesn't respond. And that's fine. And that happens all the time. So I'd say use DMs. And then I, I guess a framework around like, 
what to actually say. I think shorter is better. I've definitely made the mistake when I was early on, like giving pe- like sending like a paragraph to someone and you realize like people are busy, people are doing other stuff and give them like a short one or two lines about like, oh, I liked this thread because of X, would love to connect or something like that. So I'd say shorter, punchier. Think about it kind of like the SSS that we talked about with the emails. I'm mean, just kind of refine it for Twitter. Nice. Awesome. Okay, cool. We're going to f- finish up soon because I know you're, you've got a lot going on. But just one of the final questions I've had, obviously, like you have over 100,000 followers now. You've had a bunch of tweet threads that went like super viral. What has been like one of the cooler moments or maybe it's someone that's DM'd you that you're, I cannot believe this person even knows who I am. Or maybe it's just been that you got so many impressions on a tweet thread. Like, can you kind of talk to talk to that? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a good one. So I guess one is this happened yesterday, which was kind of cool. I wrote a thread about that Collins mentioned. I wrote a thread about Seinfeld's like six step system for writing and how he basically like changed the game and like how it is to be a professional comedian. And Carl Quintanilla, who's like one of the head CNBC anchors, retweeted me or quote tweeted me yesterday. I was like, this is insane. Like I've seen this guy like on my TV all the time um, on CNBC. So like cool moments like that, you realize like, even though there's like an impression number next to something, it feels crazy that like if a number's big, like real people are reading it and you get to like a chance for them to, you know, enjoy your content. I think it's even cooler too when like, someone you know subscribes to my newsletter and they'll like reply and be like hey love your content have been following for a while that kind of stuff and i try to like enjoy that because it's like i'm putting out you know all my stuff for free and glad that people are resonating with it okay awesome i think this is maybe a good question actually to 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 finish off on which is like obviously you've done the podcast you've done the twitter you graduated university pretty recently how have you already seen the benefits of some of that like some of the Twitter stuff and some of the podcast stuff that you've done? Like, have there been any opportunities that you think have been pretty unique, which have come to you as a result of doing stuff on Twitter? I know you obviously worked with Sean for a bit, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. The Sean thing was great for the context. I worked a few months for him in the winter of 2021. So about a year ago, helping him basically write drafts of different threads or different content or help him with his email newsletter a little bit. So it's good for me. That was just like a good opportunity to like see a whole new level of writing of like what writing could be because he's an incredible writer. So it was great. I'd say one thing about like, there's just like a credibility aspect that I think is pretty awesome. Like now I can DM someone that I've been following or that I'm a fan of and I'm more likely to get a response, right? Like it's just like the more followers you have, like it's kind of a social signaling thing. And I think that is a, that is a cool aspect. You know, people are interested in collaborating on different things and, and working together in some capacity. That's great. I'm kind of excited, excited to see where it goes next. Okay, awesome. Thanks a lot, man, for uh, coming on. I really appreciate it. Do you just want to quickly tell the people where they can find you if they want to follow you? Definitely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was super fun. Uh, You can follow me at Chris Halad on Twitter. And then I also have a newsletter that goes out every week. It's Threads by Chris Halad. So if you go on my Twitter, you can subscribe there. That's it.